I want to take a moment before we start and have us look at our scripture verse again that we are memorizing together. And here's how we want to do this each week. We're going to say the reference, which is Romans 3.23. We'll say the verse, and then we'll say the reference again. And that just kind of imprints it in our mind. Now, you're going to notice this week when we put this on the screen, there's some words missing. Right? So this is how this works every week. Fewer and fewer. So let's say it together. Scripture reference, ready? Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. You are well on your way to memorizing your first verse from the first scripture pack that we've given. And uh, if you haven't picked one of those up, we still have those at the Next Step Center. And we would love for you to do that. You know, we are seeing some exciting days for us because we're seeing God open up opportunities for us to engage people with the gospel in new and different ways. And I remind you that if you haven't logged your gospel engagements for the week, do so at the iPad or in your life group class or do it uh, by text or you can do it by the app, whatever you need to do. I'm, we don't have the app yet, I'm sorry, the website. Uh, whatever you need to do, get those gospel engagements logged in. Another way that we're engaging Nashville with the gospel, this week we launched a local church center here at our church that is going to be part of what's called the Liberty Church Network. The Liberty Church Network establishes local centers all around the country. Their goal is to have 500 of them. And by the year 2025, see 1 million people saved and discipled through local churches. So we started that here. We had six different pastors and church planters join us for our inaugural launch. It was awesome. And we just can't wait to see how we're better together planting churches and encouraging churches. We meet once a month, and uh, it was a great first meeting. You notice that we have some students sitting down here in these T-shirts that say Triple Dog Dare. Would you welcome them this morning? Yeah. If you're not familiar with all that's going on in our student ministry, you're missing out. Uh, last night was uh, the kind of kickoff, the Triple Dog Dare. It was for our 7th and 8th graders the week before. We had Fractured Friday, which was for our 5th and 6th graders. And if you don't know all that Justin and Patton and uh, Presley are doing uh, to get everything going in our student ministry, you need to take advantage of that. There's some good things. Last night, in fact, I got to come up here for a little while, and they were doing something called, uh, playing with these things called Zorbs. It's like being wrapped in bubble wrap. Um, it's a huge ball. And what you do is you just run into each other. And uh, we were going to show you some video of that, but so many of our guys were destroyed by the girls that we thought we'd have to pixelate their faces so that they could be able to have some self-respect. I'm telling you, it was an amazing night to be able to see that. Today's kind of the last day that we're actually specifically talking about gospel engagements. Uh, and uh, last week we looked at a gospel engagement with a man named Ananias and Saul and how uh, Ananias had to overcome his fear to engage Saul with the gospel. This week I want you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 10. We're looking at two men, one named Peter, one named Cornelius. And the story of Peter and Cornelius actually takes up the entire 10th chapter of the book of Acts. But in the interest of time, we're not going to read all of those verses because some of them repeat the story as they are kind of going back and forth telling each other what God has done in their lives. And so we'll look at some select verses through that. But I would encourage you this afternoon to go home and read the entire 10th chapter. Uh, if you have a friend you could read it with, that would be great and talk about what God was doing, somebody in your family, read it with them and kind of go over what God was doing 
uh, in these two men's lives because it's pretty incredible. As we look at this week's passage, I want you to see how God works in and around and through gospel engagements. And I want you to pay very close attention to what both of these men had to overcome in their lives because both of them had to overcome something. One had to overcome his uh, kind of own, uh, I guess you would call it uh, self-righteousness, and one had to overcome uh, some cross-cultural barriers to be able to be part of this gospel engagement. So let's read Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who is also called Peter. He is same with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. We learn a couple of interesting things about Cornelius in the first six verses of chapter 10. The first thing we see is a little bit about his background. Cornelius was a soldier in the Roman army, and he was in a strategic city called Caesarea. It's a port city, and the Romans had used it as an established base of operations when they had come to conquer Israel. He was also part of the Italian cohort, meaning that he had come from Italy to be part of this occupying force uh, when he came. You may be familiar with the term centurion because that is a term that was found around Jesus Christ's uh, death at the cross. There was a centurion there. A centurion was a man who was in charge of 100 soldiers, and they were part of a battalion of about 600 soldiers. So there would have been six centurions taking care of 100 men each. So you can kind of see that this guy is pretty important. It's not like he's a general or an emperor exactly, but he's managing a large group of people as he is in charge of them. We also see that he's a man of influence and position here who has brought his family with him because he wanted them to be close. We'll see that a little bit later in the chapter. At some point, Cornelius had begun to seek the Lord, and he had uh, kind of given us several clues about this in Acts chapter 10. One is that he's called a devout man who feared God. When we talk about these terms, we're talking about someone who knows God but is not yet familiar with Jesus Christ. He was a God-fearer. The Jews used this term to describe someone who was uh, kind of participating with them but was not fully converted to Judaism. The other thing that we see about him that's kind of interesting is this idea of being God-fearing means that he was a religious person. He was a person who took part in religious activities. We also see that he was a generous man. Cornelius was a person who gave alms to the needy. So he's a little bit different as a Roman soldier than most of the Roman soldiers that we see because rather than using his position of power and influence to abuse those who were his subjects, Cornelius is actually a person who is generous to people. He gives to the needy and he takes care of them. And then we see about him that he is also religious in the sense that he's adopted some of the practice of the Jews by praying at the ninth hour of the day. That means three o'clock in the afternoon. Interestingly enough, that's exactly when the Savior died, was at three in the afternoon. But the Jews saw this as the most holy hour. It was the time of the afternoon prayers, the evening prayers, and also the time of the afternoon or evening sacrifice that was made in the temple. So when we kind of think about Cornelius, we have kind of three options to deal with him. Was Cornelius a lost soul? Was he a seeker 
Or was Cornelius a believer? Well, when we look at this, I think it's obvious that he's not exactly just a lost soul who doesn't want anything to do with God. He has a genuine appreciation for God. He's interested in the things of God. And what he was doing kind of leads us to believe that he's a seeker. God's moving in his life, and he's being stirred by the Spirit to understand some things about God. And he's doing the best he can with what he has, but he hasn't fully been saved yet. He's not a believer yet, and that kind of makes it interesting. As he was praying, he began to have a vision. An angel appeared to him and said to him, you need to send very specifically for a man named Simon who's in a place called Joppa. By the way, that's where Jonah was when God spoke to him, Joppa. Interesting. Jonah ran, Peter didn't. He had very specific instructions. You know, they don't have the 911 system, so it's not like they have house numbers and streets. But he says, go and find Simon, this tanner, and you'll find in his house a man named Simon Peter. And I think there's a couple of things that we need to recognize at this point in the story that are very important. The first is that we see in Cornelius' life, religious activity doesn't equal salvation. You can be absolutely passionate and religious just like Cornelius was and be involved in religious activities just like so many people around the world are and yet you don't necessarily mean that you're saved. You can understand it like this. There are a lot of people around the world who go to worship. They make sacrifices. They give offerings. They fast. They do all kinds of things. They participate in the ritual of worship but they're not yet saved. You see, you may have grown up in a church your entire life, and you may be very familiar with what we're doing here today. You may be very busy in the activity of the church. You may agree with the tenets of the church, and yet it would be easy to be religious and not be saved because our trust is not in an activity. Our trust is in a Savior and his work on the cross. Don't ever confuse that. Our trust is not in the activity of the church. It's in the Savior. Second thing we need to see from Cornelius' story is that being a good man's not enough. Being a good woman's not enough. Being a good kid, a teenager, it's not enough. You can be a great kid, great person at work, civically minded, generous to the poor, good to your family, and it's not enough. You know, Cornelius was, again, this person who's not abusing people. He's, in fact, giving to them, and yet that's not enough because being good is not the standard. I think that's one of the most confusing things when you talk to people about the gospel. Every time I talk to somebody about the gospel, one of the first things they'll say is this, I try to be a good person. Great. I'm glad that you try to be a good person because the converse of that is you being a scallywag, right? No one wants that in their life. Being a good person is wonderful. You should try to be a good person, right? But that has nothing to do with salvation. You can't be good enough to earn salvation. I was talking with my mom about this not long ago, and she recalled for me a story of a lady who was talking to her about how being good never is good enough. And the lady said it like this, and I think this makes it so clear. You could agree with me that you have sinned probably one time a day in your life, right? Every day of your life, once a day, right? So 365 sins in a year. That's not that much. But if you live to be 70, that's over 25,000 sins, right? Did you hear what I just said? 25,000 sins. I've been around some of you, and you sin more than once a day. (laughs) It's curtains for you. No hope, right? What hope do we have of being good? If, If the best we can do is to sin once a day, right? I mean, and we just think that was great. But at the end of our lifetime, we would be covered with 25,000 blots to our name. Folks, 
How good are you really? You're fooling yourself if you think you're good. We're not good. There's no one who's good. There's no one who's righteous. When we think about it like that, we understand what the Scripture says. There's none who are righteous, none of us, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, right? So being good isn't it. So if you're trusting in being good enough, you're never going to be good enough to please God. You can't do it because you'd have to be perfect. The last thing we see from Cornelius' life is a reminder for those of you who are believers in the room today of why we do gospel engagements. God was preparing something in Cornelius' life. God was drawing Cornelius to himself. You see, God was at work. There may not have been other people who recognized that God was at work in Cornelius' life, but God was doing something. God was stirring his heart. God was using what he had already been given. Cornelius had a religious framework, and God was using that to say there is more. And something about this man's heart stirred God in such a way that he said, I'm going to send someone to him. God's at work all the time. You know, the first two funerals that I ever did as a pastor were not what I would call normal funerals. I was a bivocational pastor living in another state from the church that I pastored. Every Sunday morning, I got up with Kathy, and we drove about two and a half hours to this church that we were pastoring, and we were there with them kind of all day Sunday. They didn't have Sunday night church, and then we'd drive back and go back to work. And we did that for a number of months. In the first months that I did that, we had someone pass away who I had never met because she'd been in a, uh, a nursing home facility and just being there on Sundays, I hadn't gotten around to all of the nursing homes to be able to see people. And she was an elderly lady, and everyone talked about her in our church with glowing terms. She had been a, a follower of Christ, a servant of the Most High God for sure, served the church, loved her family, all those kinds of things. And you can imagine it's a little bit difficult to do a funeral when you don't know someone and you don't know what to say. You kind of piece some things together, and then you're able to just do the funeral the best you can. The second funeral that I did there was not unlike the first in that it was a homebound person who about a year into my pastoring of this church passed away. Difference was I'd had a little bit more time, and on two occasions someone had taken me to visit her uh, while she was homebound. I'd seen her once in her home and then once as she went into a nursing care facility. One of the things that people talked about in her life was the same as the first one. She was a great lady, knew the Lord, served the Lord, had raised her family in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, overcome great difficulties to be able to do so, in fact. Uh, we got ready to do her funeral, and I was sitting on the stage, and at our church we had uh, kind of a chair here and a chair here, and there was a pulpit there. And I was sitting here, and, and there was a song being sung by a soloist. Her daughter-in-law, I believe it was, was singing the song. And I had prepared my message for this funeral, and as I was listening to this song, all of a sudden, a great fear came over my life, like that, because I had never asked that lady to tell me her story, if she had known the Lord. And the first funeral I did, I didn't have the opportunity. In the second funeral I did, I had gone with people who had told me all about her relationship with Christ, Right? But I had never asked this woman if she knew Jesus. And here I was about to do her funeral. And I just made a promise to myself that that wasn't going to happen again. That that just wouldn't happen again. A few months after that funeral, Kathy and I invited a new neighbor over to our home to have dinner with us. And I told her that story. I said, you know, I, I had to do a funeral recently. And I'd never asked this person if they knew 
Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So I've got to ask you, do you know Christ? I know you've come to our church a few times, but do you know Christ as your Savior? And she said, I don't. I've never given my life to Christ. And Kathy and I got to lead her to Christ. I got to baptize her. See, sometimes we wonder, you know, well, who should I share with? Who should I ask about this? I mean, what would it be like if I asked this person and they were always a believer? And I would just say to you, don't ever be ashamed or afraid to ask one to tell, someone to tell you their story. Because if they have a story, it'll be great. You'll be encouraged by it. And if they don't have a story, you'll be able to share with them. See, God's working in people's lives all the time. And sometimes we think, I don't want to burden them with this. I don't know that I should share something with them. Or, or are they the right person for me to share with? That's the wrong question. God's preparing people to hear the gospel all the time. We must be ready, and that's what we see. Because as we look at this passage, let me just ask you one question. Who's doing all the work so far? God. Cornelius wasn't doing any work. And as we'll see, Peter didn't even know what was going on. Let's look at verse 9, Acts chapter 10. On the next day as they were on their way, these men who Cornelius sent to find Peter, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop, about the sixth hour. That's about lunchtime. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. While God was preparing Cornelius's heart for what was about to happen, he was also preparing another person. He was preparing Peter for what was about to take place, and the Bible records that he did it through an object lesson. Now, this seems a little bit funny to us, a sheet coming down from heaven held by the four corners and all kinds of things on it that you should eat and things that you probably wouldn't worry about eating. But you have to remember, for Peter, being a Jew, part of what he lived by was some dietary restrictions according to the ceremonial law that God had given them. There were things that were considered unholy and unclean they were not supposed to eat. So when Peter says, I can't do this, what he's saying is, it's an impossibility for me to eat this kind of stuff and remain holy to you, Lord. I will not do it. He doesn't quite yet understand. When we go back to an understanding of the law in the Old Testament, I think there's a little bit of confusion about that, especially for Christians. Christians sometimes wonder, well, why are there parts of the Old Testament that we no longer follow, and there are parts of the Old Testament that we do follow? And let me see if I can help us understand that. There are three different kind of categories of law in the Old Testament, and if we understand them, then it will make sense as to what was going on here. The first category of law that we would see would be ceremonial law, and this would include things that would have to do with ritual cleansings and things like the sacrificial law. So when we talk about ritual cleansings, let's understand for a minute that there's no such thing as antibiotics, right? There's no way to heal diseases exactly at this point. And so if someone's sick, they're sent outside of the camp until they can wash and become 
become clean after a number of days. And who do they show themselves to? They show themselves to the priest who is kind of leading this camp as they're going around. They also had things that were uh, ceremonial in terms of don't eat this because that could make you sick and we're trying to keep you healthy. But they also had things that had to do with the sacrificial system. Well, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and we no longer need the blood of lambs or goats. We don't need that anymore because Jesus, precious blood shed for us, ended the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law system for us. We don't need that anymore. So then the second category of law would be what we would call the national law. Israel was its own country, and it was a little bit different because it's not a democracy like we have. In fact, it was what was called a theocracy. Led by God, uh, there are theocracies around the world today that you know that are religious in nature, but this one was led by God himself, the one true God. And so there were certain things about how the nation was to conduct its business that were given by God that have not necessarily been carried forward. For instance, you don't pull out someone's tooth if they knock out your tooth in our society today. We handle it a little bit differently in America. And you can debate whether that's right or wrong or whatever. It doesn't matter. That was a different country than what we live in today. And so it's not always applicable to what we do. But then there is the moral law, the last category, the third category. And that's things like the Ten Commandments, right? So when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we bring those forwards because the moral law is still valid in our lives. We would still say it's a great idea for you not to steal, right? God doesn't want you to steal. And you say, well, why do we do that? Well, because Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of any of this law. I fulfilled this law. So what did he do? He fulfilled the ceremonial law. God was not going to be dealing necessarily through a nation anymore because he was dealing through the person of Christ to people and multiple people groups, right? Thank God for that. Can we say amen, that we're part of that? Uh, and so when we understand that when Jesus came to fulfill the law, then he's the embodiment, too, of the perfect law, the moral law, because he never broke one of the moral laws. So God had to do some work in Peter's life, and he showed him an object lesson of this food so that Peter would clearly understand that salvation was about to be for everyone. And that's contrary to Peter's thinking up until this point. God had been dealing with a particular people. People called out, the Jews. It would be foreign for them to associate with a Gentile. That's not something that happens. They don't worship together. Gentiles were not allowed to come into the temple and worship. They had to stand outside, right? So what God was doing is getting Peter to expand his horizons and see that God was making salvation available for everyone. So Peter's thinking about this vision, right, of this food, and all of a sudden these messengers show up. And they recount the story to Peter about this God-fearing man named Cornelius, and they say, would you please come with us? You see, when God's moving in people's lives, there are so many things that happen behind the scenes. God prepares people for salvation, but he also prepares us, his messengers, to go and do the work. The common denominator here is that God is doing the work, right? We're the mouthpiece of the Lord, but God is the one who is doing the work. And so when you understand that, he's preparing us today to go out into the fields. The reason that you came in here this morning, you may have thought was for a thousand different reasons, but when you leave here, there's one purpose that you've been given, and that's that you are the mouthpiece of God. When you leave this building today, you may be the only Jesus, right, that anyone ever interacts with, and God may have set some divine appointments for you this week. Maybe you've even experienced it this past week. I did. 
as we've been talking about gospel engagements, God has brought gospel engagements across my path. God has been preparing me for it, and he's been preparing other people for it so that they were ready maybe to hear for the first time about salvation, so they were ready for that invite to church to be able to understand what it is. And so as we get prepared, God is doing something. Well, Peter had these things to work through, but he did, understanding that they could be saved. You know, it's funny because I don't think it's a stretch for us this morning to identify with Peter. And here's what I mean. It's very easy for us to have a narrow focus of salvation and think maybe salvation isn't for that person in my family I don't like. Or maybe there's this country over here that we don't get along with in our country and salvation couldn't possibly be for them, could it? Could salvation really be for people that would harm our country? Could salvation be for a people group that I don't understand? Absolutely. And that's what we're seeing. Look at verse 34 and listen to Peter's response when he got to Cornelius's house. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Peter didn't get it at first, but he got it now. God isn't partial to any one group of people or person. Verse 35 teaches us that every nation and people are welcome to come to God. You can picture it like this. God stands there with open arms waiting for people to come to him. And he says, whosoever will may come. And he's waiting for that. That's his desires for people to be saved. And so that's important for us to understand. You can't blow off a people group you don't understand. You can't blow off maybe a different socioeconomic class that you don't feel like you necessarily relate to. I don't relate to the wealthy. I don't relate to the. It doesn't matter. We have to be about God's business. We have to understand maybe that that's why God's bringing all of these people groups to Nashville, Tennessee. And if all you see that is an imposition to your life and things making it difficult, you've missed it. You're short-sighted. You're not understanding what God is trying to do. You know, we all come to the Lord with our own nationalistic identity. You have a cultural identity. But those things are man-made. Those are man-made. That's not made by God. Jesus transcends all of that. And our responsibility is to go. And I would just encourage you to make sure that you believe that in your heart today and that you settle that issue in your life once and for all, that salvation is for everyone. After this, Peter preached the gospel. He tells them about Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. And when he's finished, something crazy happens. The Holy Spirit shows up in these believers' lives, just like the Holy Spirit did in Acts chapter 2, when Peter and the apostles and those who were waiting for the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost had experienced. Let's read about that in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, that's the Jews, all the Jews who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. You know what that means? They were saying, we didn't see this coming. We can't believe that. Wow. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. 
One of the things that happens when the Holy Spirit shows up is that people's lives are changed. And the Holy Spirit was giving evidence to this by these folks having the exact same experience that Peter and the Jews had had in Acts chapter 2. I think one of the things that happens in Baptist life is that the Holy Spirit is often the forgotten person of the Trinity. It's not Father, Son. It is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. And we're afraid to talk about that sometimes, as if we'll be considered like a holy roller or something. You know, like if you said in your Sunday school class or the life group today, you know, the Holy Spirit told me to do this. People would say, are you Pentecostal? No, I'm a Christian. I listen to the Holy Spirit. Do you? Have you ever prayed to the Holy Spirit? Have you ever asked the Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts, to give you wisdom? If the Holy Spirit is the counselor, do you just ignore him? I think that's really important. Over the next three weeks, two, three weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives on Sunday morning. That's going to be our next, our next few sermons because I think that's vitally important for us to understand. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together, pulling in the same direction always, never against one another, and working in our lives. And Jesus said, I'm going away because it's going to be better for you. The Holy Spirit is going to come. Well, the Holy Spirit did come in this way, and these people began to speak in tongues. And so your next question is, well, do you believe in people speaking in tongues? I do. When you see Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10, it's a very clear thing. They were speaking in intelligible language that people understood for gospel proclamation. Evangelism was always around it. If you don't understand that, I'd encourage you to ask our co-pastor, Pastor Gene, about an experience he had speaking in a church one time where he spoke in English. And two people who were in the audience who spoke Russian, two young men on a foreign exchange, came down front and talked with another pastor who didn't speak Russian. He spoke English. And after the service, they came back to Pastor Gene and said, uh, Hey, we need to tell you what's going on here. These guys don't speak English. I don't speak Russian. They've understood every word that you've said, and they're ready to give their lives to Christ today. Well, how is that? What is that, a fluke? Or is it the Holy Spirit? right? Is it that we don't believe in the Holy Spirit so we don't see him work? Is it that we're too busy with the material world that we don't see that there is a world that we cannot see with our human eyes? This confirmation was amazing, wasn't it? God had been moving in people's lives and it showed up in such a way that people were saved. Can I give you four takeaways from this? One, God is always preparing people to receive the gospel. Every day, every minute, he's preparing them. And if we could believe this, it would change how we interact with people. Because we might believe that God had set some divine appointments for us. He may not have written them on your calendar yet this week. But when you show up, if your eyes are open to the Spirit's leading and moving, you may see, if you're sensitive enough to that, that God is ready to use you as his mouthpiece to change someone's life if you will engage with them. Now, I want to remind you that we've set this goal of 50,000 gospel engagements. And here's what that means. You, you have to engage with two people a week for that to happen. If you don't engage with two people a week, it's not going to happen. 
we remind you again how you can do this. You can tell your story. You can tell his story. You can pray with a coworker. You can invite someone to church. Uh, there's a track rack right behind this door right here where you can stop and pick up a gospel track and leave it with your server when you leave a good tip at lunch. This is not hard, but it does require intentionality. And it requires you believing that God is ready to work in your life and that he's preparing you. Second, God has to prepare us to go. There's always a reason not to go. Last week we saw that Ananias was afraid. This week we saw that Peter had to overcome some cultural issues that he didn't understand. He went to a culture that he was not part of, and God used him anyway. So you say, well, I don't understand that culture. I, I can't speak into a young person's life because I don't understand the, people, the young people of today. That's a lie. Do you understand what it's like to be lost? then you understand what it's like to deal with someone who's younger than you. You might say, I'm a teenager. How can I speak with a senior adult that I see out in town? Do you understand what it's like to be lost? Tell them your story. People are dying for interaction. They're dying for it. They've replaced it with a cheap form of it, with their phones. And if you will engage people and get over whatever it is that says, I don't need to do this right now, God will bless that. Oh, he'll show up in a way. And let me tell you something. You get an opportunity to lead a friend to Christ, see someone's life changed, it will change you forever. Third, we see that the gospel's cross-cultural. It's for everyone, so we have to be open and attuned to that, to all people around us. No matter if we think we don't speak their language, you can use the Bible.is uh, app from Faith Comes By Hearing to be a digital missionary. More to come on that in April. You'll hear a little bit more about that. But if we would just understand that God wants us to reach people that may not necessarily fit into our culture or our friend group or the, the life that we live, it, it doesn't matter if we're about reaching people. Finally, it could be that instead of being like Peter this morning, you're like Cornelius. You're a good person. And we thank you for that. We want you to be a good person. It could be that you're a generous person. Thanks. That's good. We want you to be generous. There are great needs all around our city. You might be very busy in our church or your church or your temple or your mosque. Good. But are you saved? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you stopped counting on all the things you could do and you just put your faith in Jesus Christ? You repented of your sins and asked him to cleanse you. If you've never done that, if you're relying on anything else but the blood of Jesus shed for us, it's not enough. And today is the day of salvation. I want to encourage you to give your life to Christ today. In a moment, we're going to close with a prayer. And that prayer signals the end of the teaching time, but it also signals the beginning of the response time. There has to be a response to the teaching of the Word of God. There can only be, really, one or two. Yes, Lord, I will engage people with the gospel Yes, Lord, I will be saved today. Or, no, 
I will not go. I will not obey. I will not engage. Or no, I'll give my life to Jesus later. I don't have time for that. I'm thinking about it. There's, there's more time. But we all know that that's a gamble that you might win today, but one day time runs out. And by the way, believers, time's run, running out for you to share with your friends and your family members and the people who are closest to you. Time is running out. It's short. What are you going to do? Let's respond today. Father, we ask you in this moment to remove every barrier that would be cultural or nationalistic or fear or thinking that we're not worthy or able to be able to share the gospel, Lord, so that we can engage people with the gospel this week. Lord, I pray you would burn it on every person's heart in here to engage two people with the gospel this week. That our answer would be yes. Father, I pray as well for the soul who is in here who does not know you. They may be a good person, Lord, but you've been drawing them, but they've not yet done what they need to with Jesus. Today could be the day, Lord, that you saved them. Would you do it? We pray for their hearts to be softened. And our response to be yes, Lord, that we will follow and we will go wherever you lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.